If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hey there, leading ladies. Welcome to the Women Physicians Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Herbert, a two-time best-selling author, speaker, family physician, and executive leadership coach with over 20 years experience of providing primary care and serving as a healthcare leader. If you are a woman physician ready to make a change in your career and have a seat at the leadership table, then you are in the right place. I'm excited to provide you with the crucial skills you need to be a successful leader and strategies to deal with workplace challenges. So put on your headphones and listen as we explore the new world of building women physician leaders. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Women Physicians Lead podcast. I am Dr. Lisa Herbert, your board-certified family physician, best-selling author, speaker, and executive leadership coach. And I'm excited to bring another amazing guest today to our podcast. So today I will be interviewing Dr. Amanda Johnson. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Johnson, and then we're going to get into some really, really great questions. And I'm sure that you're going to learn a lot from this episode. So Dr. Amanda Johnson is Assistant Vice President of Care Models in the Office of Ambulatory Care and Population Health for NYC Health and Hospitals. In this role, she leads a team to deliver enhanced primary care, outreach, and engagement models for people experiencing structural barriers to accessing health care, such as homelessness or involvement in the criminal legal system. She also serves as director of the aftercare program of the Test and Treat Corps, which provides New Yorkers with the resources needed to effectively isolate or quarantine due to COVID-19 and connects people with long COVID with physical health, mental health, financial, and community supports. At the outset of the pandemic, she was serving as interim chief medical officer at Sidham Health Center. She continues to care for patients at Sidham Health Center, where she offers integrated primary care and treatment for substance use disorders. Prior to joining NYC Health and Hospitals, she served as the Internal Medicine Chief Resident for Quality Improvement and Patient Safety at UCSF. She completed her residency in internal medicine at UCSF's primary care program based at San Francisco General Hospital. She received her medical degree from Harvard Medical School and her MBA from Harvard Business School. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford University, earning her BA with honors and distinction in human biology and Spanish, as well as a minor in African and African-American studies. She is originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and she is clinical assistant professor of medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Johnson, to the Women Physicians Lead podcast. I'm really excited to have you here today, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Herbert. It's great to be here with you. 
Yes. So I want to first start out as I always do with, with my guests. And I want you to kind of just tell us a little bit about your journey. So when you think back to your career and your leadership journey, who or what may have been instrumental in that decision? Yeah. So I think that I've had a sense that I wanted to go into medicine to be of service, uh, to be able to use science to change people's lives from pretty early age. Um, and it's hard to say which came first. Uh, was it the love of medicine and science or, or was it that everything I saw seemed to have some relationship to medicine and science? Um, so I am the eldest of six daughters in my family and I had the you know experience of being able to see my mother you know be pregnant with, give birth to all of my five younger sisters. And so going to the doctor, uh, was uh, almost a, an exciting part of being a kid, uh, getting to see them grow and develop, uh, getting to run to the medical encyclopedia or medical dictionary if somebody had a rash or if somebody had a fever and trying to figure out what it was um, that they needed, uh, what we should be doing. Uh, and then, you know, as I grew older and got to see, you know, my grandparents' uh, age, see my parents get older, to see kind of what it meant to interact with the medical system as an emerging adult, it really kind of uh, heightened my awareness of the opportunities for change where we could improve. Also, you know, born in the 80s, grew up during kind of this managed care uh, revolution. And when I would start to express people this desire to go into medicine, they would say, why would you ever want to do that? Doctors can't do anything anymore. And that just didn't seem to, to make sense to me. It seems that if that was the issue, you know, people's need for healthcare wasn't going to go away. It was the system that needed to change. And so I think uh, those responses maybe even sharpened my resolve to get into the field and see what good I could achieve uh, as a physician and as a physician leader. That's an amazing story. So you really were destined to lead, right? Being the oldest of six siblings. <laughs> I think it's going to come up more than once in the rest of this conversation. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Absolutely. All first at home. Right, right. So tell us a little bit about um, your journey from being a physician to a physician leader. What did that look like? And how did you find yourself sort of like in this um, leadership role? Sure. So even going to back to college, uh, I knew that I was going to major in human biology. I was going to get a double major in Spanish because I thought those were the foundational uh, sets of training that I needed to, you know, proceed to medical school, eventually become a practicing physician. Um, and I remember going to a pre-med advisory group um, for uh, African, African-American students. And one of the speakers talked about the fact that he didn't feel like he had a place at the table to make structural decisions, policy decisions, even though he had an MPH. And I, it, it flagged for me early on that to achieve the type of change and transformation that I thought would be necessary in healthcare to make sure that everybody was getting to benefit from uh, the advances, the opportunities, the funding available in our medical system. It was gonna take more than just studying really hard, getting good MCAT scores, getting good step scores, getting good board scores, but you're gonna need to have a different and complementary skill set. Um, from college, I made the decision not to go to medical school right away. And there were a couple of things that weighed in on it. Part of it was testing the hypothesis that there was nothing else in the world that I wanted to do aside from be a doctor. Another thing was uh, I went to college in California. And so that was a four-year period where I was away from my family, who was all centered in the Midwest at that time. 
Um, and I had actually two sisters who were going to be going into college the year that I got out of college. And I think it was important to be around and be present for that transition for them as well. Um, I also knew that I wanted to apply to medical school once. And I didn't want to leave anything on the table. I wanted to have the finances so that I'd be able to apply to all of my dream schools and go to interviews at all of my dream schools. Uh, so that also weighed into it. And then coming to the decision that I probably want to seek an MBA, uh, maybe want to get a little bit of work experience under my belt. So I worked for an industrial supplies distribution company in, uh, in a Chicago suburb for about two and two thirds years between medical, excuse me, between college and medical school. I worked in their information systems department and it was, this was completely different skill set of information technology, of uh, process engineering, of operations. Uh, and it still informs the way I communicate and solve problems today. And so it was amazing training and really gave me all of those things that I wanted before going into professional school. And then in professional school, like I still sought every opportunity I could to get the chance to to lead, so not just to uh, take a process and own it, but also to try and work with others to create new things. I would say one of the most formative experiences from my medical school training was being able to be part of uh, the group of students that founded the Student Faculty uh, Primary Care Collaborative Practices. So these are the student-run clinic equivalents at Harvard Medical School, and we were able to grow it from uh, one site practice to a five site practice during the five years of professional uh, school training that I had up in Boston. And then from there, you know, in residency, you get the opportunity to lead teams. Um, we also got the opportunity to lead quality improvement projects and being able to, to be a chief resident in that program and really start to have an opportunity to lead in the medical education apparatus was just another opportunity to sharpen a slightly different skill set. And, continually get exposure. So I think that, you know, at every step along the way, I was trying to accumulate these experiences so that I'd be prepared for uh, the scope of opportunities that await people after training. Yeah. And, you know, it's really um, interesting listening to your story because it really speaks to the importance of exposure to leadership and what that looks like in terms of the training and the skill set. And that started for you as early as um, being in this pre-med advisory group, right? So, and we know that, you know, now it's becoming more accepted. I think for a lot of the medical schools and residency programs and hospitals to start adopting some sort of leadership curriculum, but it really, again, just speaks to the importance of having that early on um, and then being able to use those skill sets to be able to create the change that we want to see in the healthcare system. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about your role and um, what does a day in the life of Dr. Johnson look like uh, in terms of what you do and who do you serve and what do you find are some challenges maybe in your role? Yeah, so uh, a typical day. We'll start by just carving out Mondays. Mondays are my day in clinic. So that is the day when I see patients and it's a chance for our uh, for me to do, I think like every week renew my vows. It's a chance to go and do patient care delivery and remember why you are in it. And the conversations that you get to have with patients are such a privilege, such an honor. 
uh, they, I always leave Monday feeling good and tired. It is exhausting. I think all of us who see patients, especially if you're in primary care, um, know how much it requires from you emotionally, physically, but what, there's no other experience where people share so much with you, where they trust you so much, where they really value their relationships with you, where they thank you and that thank you means the things that it does in medicine. Um, and when you are ever frustrated in clinic, I find myself that I'm frustrated about the limits of what I can offer people because I see them working so hard and I see how much they care about their health and how thoughtful they are about their health. And so that just uh, fuels you to think about, okay, how can we optimize templates? How can I smooth out this referral process to this resource? How can we figure out how to optimize this transportation benefit? Because it feels like there's a gap here. Um, and so I think that's a really uh, important part of just the arc of my week, but it also is pretty uh, centering to, you know, to start your week with patient care. From there, um, there's probably, I will say two hats that I wear. Um, part of it is the work that we do on long COVID. So I have a team uh, that runs our aftercare program. So they work with a network of community-based organizations uh, to do both outbound calling as well as receive inbound calls from people who might be living with long COVID. So people who are experiencing some of these cardinal symptoms of fatigue, breathlessness, uh, dysautonomia, you know, I can't stand up in the shower, I can't get out of bed, uh, hair loss, muscle aches, it's really protean. It ranges you know, uh, every organ system could be affected. And so the symptoms are, are, are quite diverse, but trying to reach out to them and connect them with uh, resources. Um, the most popular ones have been around physical health and then mental health as well. And so a lot of it is helping people get connected to medical care and just reaffirming that what they're experiencing is real, that they aren't imagining that they just haven't felt quite the same since they were infected with COVID. And I think that's a really important part of the, the work that we're doing because when we think about how the pandemic uh, affected the population in the United States, we know that not everybody was affected equally. We know that there's a disproportionate burden among people of color and that can be reasons of congregate living situations or overcrowding in households or being in professions where you still have to get on the train and commute every day. And if you think about what people might have experienced with the healthcare system, uh, even before getting COVID, to then again be told that you're being hysterical or that you are overemphasizing your symptoms or that this isn't real, that your pain isn't real, that all this is not, not it's all in your head. Um, there's a lot to, to help people work through to trust the medical system again. And so aftercare is one way that we get to do that work. The vast majority of my time when I'm not in clinic is spent on our care models work. Um, and as I mentioned before, this is our work to help individuals to experience structural barriers, which again, falls out along racial lines, uh, have productive interactions, have healing interactions with the healthcare system. And our focus has been on um, the care of people experiencing homelessness. Uh, and you've got the whole policy legacy related to housing and housing discrimination. And then you have the care of people specifically in the reentry period, so coming back to the community after being in custody in jail or in prison. And so we have uh, another team that helps uh, deliver 
the programs in our facility. So New York City Health and Hospitals is a really large organization. We're technically a public benefit corporation, but we serve all New Yorkers. We exist to make sure that everyone who resides in New York City can receive care with dignity and respect. So through our 11 essential hospitals, our care management agency, our uh, certified nursing agency, our skilled nursing facilities, our uh, Medicaid, um, or rather our health plan, which offers Medicaid products, that everything we do um, furthers that aim. And so we have people who are kind of inward facing and think about how do we implement these programs in the facilities and also in the community, but they're really focused on kind of healthcare delivery with all of those things that make healthcare more accessible, you know, walk-in access, trauma-informed uh, system design, um, behavioral health integration, uh, so just delivering care in the right way. Um, and then there's also a lot of work that we have to do that is either externally facing within health and hospitals, so making sure that we're having the right collaborations with finance and with our managed care department, um, with our housing unit, with our colleagues in behavioral health. So all of that kind of central office, enterprise level coordination to make sure that the programs play out in the way that we want them to on the ground when you're actually having patient case encounters. And then because we are a city agent, or rather a city entity, there's a whole world of interactions that we have with community-based organizations who are also similarly committed to these issues and the other city agencies like the Department of Public Health, which in New York City is separate from the healthcare public healthcare delivery system. So New York Health, City Health and Hospitals and our Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Um, we collaborate with um, our uh, Department of Homeless Services. Uh, and then, you know, there will be other city agencies, the Department of Social Services, which houses both uh, Department of Homeless Services and um, HRA, which administers a lot of benefits. So there's just a whole kind of public policy arena um, that is core to the work that we do and making sure that it, again, plays out in the way that we want it to for patients on the ground. And so uh, my team definitely also um, does a lot of that public facing work, but I would say that some of you know, the things that I've learned and the way that my work has transformed in the time that I've worked for uh, New York City Health and Hospitals over the past four years, you know, that growth from being an individual contributor, you know, you do well because you wrote that great document, you did that great presentation and you led that rollout and you evaluated your data and you showed that there was a cost saving to being able to really motivate people to identify what their strengths are, to put them in places and on projects where they're going to succeed, to be able to help them get to that next level um, and to be able to help them uh, collaborate with others when you can't be in that room where you know that they're going to be the best ambassadors possible of the work that you're trying to do. So we're all kind of aligned on mission, vision, values, and we can go out and uh, make this world better, that we can do our work in the right way so that, you know, someday we wouldn't actually need to exist where people will just be able to show up and get the care they deserve. Wow. That sounds like great care. I mean, just from you know, soup to nuts. It just, it's, it's very, um, it, it encompasses so many different uh, areas um, in terms of taking care of the whole patient, right? From the physical, mental, social, all those aspects, which are all very important when it comes to delivering quality care. Hey, leading ladies, stay right there. And we will be back with my amazing guests. This conversation is so good that you don't want to miss it. So stay tuned. It's 
It's time for physicians to rise up, step out, stand out, and take back our place in healthcare to be the respected voice and leader in our communities. My mission is to help physicians transition into leadership roles by equipping them with the personal and professional development skills that they need to be successful and also to help them care for themselves physically, mentally, and spiritually. If you have experience practicing in your given specialty, if you have a gift for innovation and building teams, if you have the ability to bring about change in others, if you have solved problems in your practice setting or community, then there are organizations that need you to claim your rightful seat at the table and lead. If you are ready to be a leader in healthcare and change the status quo, then I invite you to book a complimentary strategy discovery session with me at schedulewithdrlisa.com. That's schedulewithdrlisa.com. Mondays, you know, that you spend in the clinic and the fact that you look at that as renewing your vows. I mean, that just really just resonated with me because I thought that um, it's such a great mantra to have and just something that I think can be used by a lot of physicians in terms of the things that we need to inspire us to really go back sometimes into the clinic and really do that work. And then also how important it is just for leaders to continue to be a part of that front line, right? So that we can think and create as we're serving. So we can really determine what's needed, you know, within our communities and our patients. Um, And then you talked a lot about, you know, the teams that you have and the work that you do in terms of the teams and identifying that you had to really change your mindset from an individual contributor to really being a leader who influences. So what would you say to a new leader, you know, who's coming into that role or coming into that position, who has to really make that shift, you know, from being an individual contributor, which is what we're trained to do, really, we're trained to think that way, to being now a leader who has to lead other people, lead teams, and, um, and influence. And what do you see is that shift that needs to be made in terms of, you know, going, like you said, from being an individual contributor to a leader who influences? Yeah, so I think a big part of it is just marking and naming that transition for yourself, because I think something that was hard and, you know, why I was like, well, why don't I just have enough time in the week to both do all the work and supervise all the work? Like, it's just, it's just not the way that, uh, that you can be effective. You will burn yourself out and that's not what people need. And people who are also trying to be stellar individual contributors or burgeoning leaders don't want you hovering over them. So you have to to recognize that this shift did indeed happen. I think another piece of this analysis is, so taking stock of you know, who is on your team and what is their portfolio? What is in it that they really excel at and that they love doing? Um, what might be extraneous? What might not be in their sweet spot? And making sure that all those individual portfolios uh, make sense. So not just the individual, but as a collective, are the right people working on the right work? What is the overlap? 
and then where you can kind of dissecting out any redundancy and where the work is naturally intertwined, ensuring that people have identified that they share a common fate here and that the right collaboration practices, the right communication practices are in place to ensure that um, people who have shared work know how to collaborate on said work. I think the other piece is kind of looking outward and really recognizing kind of who are your peers and who are some of your key collaborators in other departments um, where your work is going to intersect. And so making sure that in the quality and safety office or in our office of behavioral health or in our housing department, you know, who are the people that you wanna be in touch with on a regular basis um, and really being proactive in those communications. Don't wait until the work collides, but really uh, if for no other reason, just for awareness, making sure that other people know what you're working on because they will call it you and, oh, we're about to talk to that same community-based organization or we are also trying to work with that city agency or we have also been thinking about how to get more of a relationship with this particular intervention offered by this particular health plan. Um, and in a big organization, um, it is very easy to kind of collapse into, recede into these silos that just makes the work harder down the line. Um, so you really have to actively uh, cultivate those channels of communication and develop a rapport that is gonna make people want to come to you with their ideas and, and kind of reciprocate that transparency. And then there's the work that you do to look upward and think about uh, the fact that you still have a boss and you still have other people who are going to be thinking about your portfolio and are you working on the right things and what else can you handle um, and so and then also you will want feedback at some point or you will need direction on things and what is the best way to get that uh, input from uh, the people who, who manage you, the people to whom you report. So kind of doing that organizational analysis has been helpful for me um, and then kind of predicts how I should uh, bucket my time during the week, what I should be focusing on. I think kind of another uh, mantra or framework that I've come up with in trying to figure out uh, what are the activities I'm doing? Why am I doing them? Like what's my purpose here has been the five Bs. So sometimes I will still need to do things. Sometimes I will still be that individual contributor. If my boss asks me to put together a presentation, he is asking me for a reason. And so I am, I am the author, I am the designer, I am putting pen to paper on it, I am doing the reading, I'm doing the synthesis. But I think as people progress in their careers, you're gonna be, you might be doing less of that doing. Then there is the delegating. It's not that I'm supposed to get it done, but I'm responsible for getting something done. So taking in a task, a piece of work, a need, and figuring out, okay, who on my team or what subset of my team is going to be best positioned to take on this piece of work? How can I delegate this to them? Sometimes I need to direct. And so if my team is working on something and they need feedback, how can I provide them with the right guidance um, so that they keep uh, making progress and that that progress is aligned with the larger system's goals? Sometimes we need to drive, and that means let's impart some urgency to what we're doing because sometimes there's a lot going on and we need to kind of block out the noise and really help people manage to a deadline. And that can be uh, imparting that sense of urgency and helping people focus and prioritize, but also it's like removing barriers and getting things out of the way so that they can do the work that they're ready and prepared to do. And then there's this last piece that I talk about as the dealing, and that is talking about and coordinating with kind of your uh, counterparts in lateral entities, lateral agencies, 
um, a lot of that coordination that makes it possible for the people on your team to do the work that they need to do. And I also kind of put in this like dealing and negotiating conversations category, like trying to get them resources. And so brokering those partnerships, uh, figuring out if there's additional staff or funds that can help your team do that work. And it's the recruitment. It's about being able to uh, get more talent for your team so that we can do the work that we need to do. And if I had add a sixth D, just on the fly, there is that aspect of development that you're doing along the way. And so uh, I work that into kind of my my one-on-ones with people. A lot of it is task supervision, but kind of every quarter we should have a development conversation. Wow. I love those um, five Ds. I think that those are all so awesome and important for emerging leaders to really take heed to. Um, So you had mentioned doing, delegating, directing, driving, dealing, and development. All all, all awesome. Yes. (laughs) I think we can have a whole nother podcast (laughs) just on those six Ds. So I want to just wrap up by saying, well, this has really been an awesome, awesome interview. And I really wanted to, um, you know, just just have you on to get some of your feedback in terms of what it really was like for you transitioning into leadership. And I think that you definitely provided a lot of information for our listeners. And lastly, I wanted to just ask you, you know, you're very busy. You obviously have so much going on. Your day-to-day, you know, can be very challenging. So if you could give three tips to our listeners in terms of what you do for self-care and what you do to continue to give you that motivation motivation and that push to do the work that you do every day, what would those three things be? So uh, for me, I know that I'm a morning person. And one of the things that's really important to me is still preserving a little bit of me time in the morning. And I've learned it doesn't have to be that long. Uh, So I am a coffee drinker. And so part of like my morning routine is like, is brewing that cup of coffee. Maybe it's a mocha pot, maybe it's a cold brew I put together the night before, but having that Yes, and then coffee. five to 10 minutes, yes, <laughs> of meditation. And somebody else, you can substitute what it is in there if it's five to 10 uh, prayer or journal or reading or something, but like a solitary and thoughtful activity. I particularly value meditation just because I think it puts me in the right mindset for the day, for the week. And on Mondays in particular, because I love clinic, but clinic is also stressful. There's a lot that you're processing during the day, not just for your patients, but there's a lot in motion with the rest of the team that's, you know, on the floor, seeing folks um, as they come in for the day. And if I, if I can get centered, if I can get calm, if I can get clear, then I'm just such a nicer person to work with. And I want to, I want to show up as that person for the rest of my team. Um, I think the other thing that I just had to learn to be better at uh, especially in the post-pandemic or uh, inside to pandemic in the, COVID, in the era where we're living with COVID is, uh, is, is letting that day end at some point. And so uh, I think I read that Shonda Rhimes doesn't answer emails after seven o'clock and I was like, well, she's not doing it, then I don't need to do it. And also remembering that if I'm sending emails at ungodly hours, that's going to send a message to my team that they're supposed to be online and they're supposed to be responding to that. So really being uh, mindful of setting boundaries and modeling that for, for others. I won't say I'm perfect, but I do make an effort to say, does this really need to go out tonight or can it wait until the morning? We're all just trying to, to unplug. 
And then like the last part of it is just finding the people who renew you. Um, and yeah, I am very, very fortunate in that I get a lot of good energy and vibes from the people on my team and the people that I get to work with every single day. Um, and I'm glad that we have the kind of relationship that, you know, you show up, you do good work, but we also appreciate each other as human beings and we celebrate each other. Um, but I have uh, have not missed the opportunity to go home and be with family uh, since we could get on planes and travel safely again after the pandemic. Uh, making sure that you're investing in your friends and in your personal relationships, like making sure that your, your interactions with your partner are what you want them to be, because those are going to be the things that uh, restore you. And those are going to be the things that you need because life will still happen to you, even if you are a physician, even if you're a physician leader, life will still happen to you. Um, and so just remembering to, to nurture your own humanity and to let yourself be human. Yes, absolutely. And I think sometimes that we forget that, you know, how, how to, to treat ourselves well, right? Um, so I love the, the, um, the self-care tips, you know, the me time in the morning, whatever that means for you, whether it's coffee or tea or, or whatever, you know, it's kind of get you going. Um, five to 10 minutes of meditation, letting the day in. That's so important because, you know, with everything being just so accessible at our fingertips, we could work into the wee hours of the evening um, and, 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 and not even realize, you know, that we're putting in that much time, but it's really important, like you said, to, to sort of just let your day in and then find the people who, you know, renew you. So those are, those are great tips. Um, and I'm sure that it'll help someone who's listening to this podcast. So Dr. Johnson, I want to just say again, thank you so much for taking out time from your busy schedule to come on today um, and to share some of your journey. Um, like I said, I'm sure that there are going to be many, many people who listen to this who um, definitely will, will take something away from, from this interaction. So any last uh, words that you may have at all? Well, one, just again, expressing my gratitude for the opportunity to be here and to talk through some of these things with me. I mean, it's also just so uh, helpful for me to, to process some of the things that I have experienced and have been learning with you and with our broader audience. Um, and then I will say, you know, I am very grateful to all of the formal education, but I will also give a special um, shout out to my parents for showing, showing what good management looks like. If you've got six daughters, you've got to have you got to be really good with kind of schedules yes. and logistics. And then, you know, for everything that my sisters have talked to me about uh, team and interpersonal dynamics. So the one-on-one -on -one relationships I have with each of my sisters is very different from any subset of those six. You know, the dynamic when we're all together in one place, whereas, you know, this group of three versus that group of three, we will like to do different things. We'll find different things funny. We will... Uh, make decisions differently. Um, and I think kind of that uh, very natural education in kind of personality and dynamics has, has been helpful as well. Great. Well, thank you again. And I'm sure that we will um, communicate again and stay in contact in the future. And you're always welcome to come back to the podcast at any time. Well, thank you so much for making it such a welcoming space. Thank you for listening today and for allowing me to be a part of your career journey. To continue receiving leadership support, I invite you to join our private Facebook group, Building Women Physician Leaders at www.leadingladiesincharge.com. 
Until next time, take care. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.